a pandemic in Wuhan, suppression in Hong Kong, and of course the controversial labor camps in China's Muslim-majority Uyghur region. Guys, we can agree that 2020 was a pretty dramatic year for China-EU relations, but that hasn't stopped the European Union from drafting a comprehensive deal with Beijing. Biden's America doesn't seem very happy about this agreement as their plan is to start a new human rights alliance with the Europeans to build a geopolitical force against the Chinese. We're waiting for the European Parliament to vote on the deal in which Washington is expected to use all of its lobby power to convince the Parliament to vote against. Meanwhile, we're back to speak about Europe. A little summary of this agreement According to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, the Brussels-Beijing deal improves EU access rights in the automotive sector, telecom equipment and private healthcare. But what it does not mention is how this deal would relate in respect with Huawei's technological cloud, the enforcement of human rights with the Muslim minorities or Hong Kong's repression of civil liberties. What to make out of this weird mix of positions and what does it say about the future of the EU's relationship with China and the US of A? You are listening to Speaking of Europe. There are many, many things you can get sick of during a COVID-19 pandemic, but one source of sickness is unlikely to appear in this era of lockdowns and quarantines and that's getting food poisoning at an airport. But that's exactly how our friend Martin Alberti Rodriguez got sick yesterday and we send all the best to our friend. I am Jules Ochens and I'm going to face the big challenge of moderating a conversation while also putting effort, as I normally do, to undermine the authority of the moderator by interrupting. To talk about this thrilling topic of the EU-China deal, we have a stellar guest all the way from Hong Kong, based in Estonia, political scientist, journalist, Iverson Hmm. Hello, Iverson. Hello. Good to see you here. And the usual suspects, our beloved yet also feared Marxist Federico Giovannini. How are you, Federico? I'm happy you fear me. I'm good. <laughs> And Federico is, of course, accompanied by his liberal friend and enemy, and that's me, Jules Orchens. Hey, guys. Iverson, how's life in Estonia? Well, it has been uh, quite a roller coaster as our foreign minister recently uh, just decided to take part in the 7 plus 1 uh, China meeting. Uh, that is right. like a cooperation between uh, China as well as uh, Central and Eastern European countries. EU members and non-EU members and then this decision was actually quite a bad news for me like personally because uh, we have seen quite a lot of discursive changes in terms of uh, how uh, the world reacts to coronavirus and, and how the, the whole you know origin of, of corona is actually from uh, Wuhan and how China is trying to downplay this uh, fact metal fact yeah yeah and and all aside the political life that you are situated in you're still of course someone coming from hong kong um are you still in contact with your friends and family in hong kong yes absolutely uh but then 
it is quite uh, an unusual way of contacting with my friends because uh, whenever I have to talk with someone from Hong Kong, I have to use a lot of uh, encrypted applications. And then, uh, for example, like a Telegram to use a secret chat and then to uh, make it disappear within 24 hours or less. And then they have this sense of self-censorship that they feel is very unsafe to talk about anything about Hong Kong. Especially uh, with the lockdown and how it is uh, politicized by the Hong Kong government, as well as the recent implementation of the national security law, which was um, extended uh, to the Hong Kong primary and secondary schools. Yeah, that, that's crazy, Iverson. I I can imagine how much this actually impacts your uh, daily life um, to know that your friends and family are becoming increasingly part of such a totalitarian regime. But it also gives you a very useful perspective of uh, the EU-China deal that is in the make right now. Um, would you give us a brief overview of uh, the crucial cleavages surrounding EU-Chinese relationships? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, um, according to the um, official EU uh, narrative uh, on EU-China relations, uh, the EU is describing China as a cooperation partner, an economic mm -hmm. competitor, a negotiating partner, and most of all, systemic rival. So, I think in our conversation, we will probably talk about how um, confrontational that uh, this relations is going to become. So so, so to, to, to understand you correctly, uh, China is explicitly described by the European Union as a potential ally when it comes to economy and as a um, absolute rival when it comes to politics. Yes, exactly. That is uh, the exact wording uh, written on the uh, EU research paper. Yeah, um, published in the European Parliament Research Service. Is that is that even like a possible combination, Federico? I mean, <laughs> we all know that you are a pretty far left uh, in your way of thinking. Uh, what do you think? Is it is it compatible to have such an attitude towards another country, economically a friend, politically a foe? I don't think so. I think we got the. I, I know you. I know you. You knew my answer. Um, <laughs> I think we got the example uh, right now of the. I don't know if I'm pronouncing correctly. Of the Uyghur, yes, Uyghur. minority. Mm -hmm. Uyghur, yeah, Uy Uyghur minority. Mm -hmm. We see that many um, Muslim leaders uh, all around the world who usually are supportive of uh, Muslims everywhere they are silent or complacent with uh, how China is behaving towards them. Why are they uh, acting this way? Because they have direct economic interests because China is investing in their countries and they, um, they are involved in the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is making China the new superpower. And since they, the same people who usually are politically uh, defensive and, uh, and advocate for rights uh, for Muslim people everywhere. Those same uh, Muslim leaders, they are silent about the Uyghur because they have an economic interest. So right, right now we have a clear empirical case that this kind of balance cannot be, um, uh, cannot work. It's not just, uh, it cannot just happen. If you have, if you're economically dependent on, on China, you will be, you will most likely be motivated not to denounce uh, the human rights um, violations. Well, I mean, I, I get your point. And yes, I also know about the um, the fact that, you know, uh, countries like Saudi Arabia uh, criticize 
the European far right for spreading Islamophobia, but they are completely silent about something that is actually close to a concentration camp um, in the in, in, on Chinese territory. But um, my my question is like you're saying like okay you cannot be politically critical to China if you're too economically dependent but you, the European Union is actually critical right about uh, Chinese uh, political acts um, even though we are um, becoming increasingly dependent on their economy or am I seeing this wrongly? Yeah, I mean, like, so far, uh, Europe it is, but it seems like Europe uh, until the deals are actually struck and the geopolitical balances are finally drawn. Europe is playing, you know, like on multiple tables in a very ambiguous uh, way, um, just because the, the real root of all this behavior of the European Union is that the European Union is not a unified geopolitical bloc with a proper direction strategy uh, and, and lead. So right. it, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of part of this, um, kind of permanent instability and almost um, um, endemic um, ambivalence of, of the European project right now so far, geopolitically yeah. speaking. I think you, you agree. Now I'm, I'm, I'm calling you not as a, a mediator, but like not as a, um, like, like I want you to comment as a liberal on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I now think I'm, now I'm making questions. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What, how should I react to this as a liberal? I, I kind of agree with you. I, I, you tell. Yeah, I know you agree, but I want to hear it uh, if you agree and why. Well, I, I, I think there is a good point in saying that, um, you know, you shouldn't become too economically dependent on a totalitarian system, because as long as that other country doesn't embrace liberal democratic values and um, opens uh, up for a truly liberal free market uh, ideology, um, it's actually very dangerous to um, intertwine your free market with it. So I, I don't think that actually this goes against uh, a liberal way of looking at the world, right? Uh, but I, overall, I think I agree with uh, your your notion. Um, should I add something to that? Or should I continue with um, my next uh, moderator's question, Federico? No, it's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's, you're the moderator. <laughs> no, no, I mean, please tell me if you did disagree. No, no, I mean, like, I know you're, you're also concerned with the European project in general. And I yeah. think that um, on the one hand, uh, you have China, from which uh, we can learn one thing, is that if you have a, a certain strategy, then you're yeah. stronger. Uh, and on the other hand, you got the US, that uh, it seems like with Biden, at least it's opening uh, this path of saying, okay, um, China took a very clear stance uh, on, on multiple dimensions in the world stage. So if we want to really make a difference against them, we should take an opposite stance. And I'm not a Biden fan at all, as you know, because mm -hmm. I wouldn't have wanted, I would have preferred Sanders, obviously. Yeah. But at least Trump. it seems like, it seems like it, he understood that uh, I'm kidding. Having, having, having an opposite stance to China, also yeah. on human rights could be, um, of course, he's doing it. He's doing it because he wants to have EU 
uh, it wants to have trade deals yeah. with the EU and does uh, you know and investment deals with the EU and doesn't want China to have them instead. But at least you know, like discursively, it, it's 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 good that he's opening uh, and opposing EU human rights uh, discourse. Yeah. So you just heard a premium uh, Federico Giovannini supports the United States of America. Um, to, to link this to my I following said, question, so I haven't said. I, I said. I said. We, I, th- <laughs> I said we have to learn from both China and, and the US from on two different levels. You know. Yeah. I just think that, that we should we should act as a, with a strategy like China does. But on the other hand, the content of that strategy should, should be closer to what Biden seems to propose, at least so far. Do you, um, Iverson, do you agree with this uh, notion, uh, given the current disagreements between Beijing and the West? How should the European Union engage with China? I mean, should it cooperate with China or rather isolate itself from China and create alliances with other like-minded regimes, such as indeed the United States of America? If we refer to the case of um, Hong Kong before, we can see actually it is not like a binary question. It's not uh, whether you say, yes, we are going to engage with China or no, we're not engaging. Because as I mentioned, uh, there are different layers of that. And I think um, in, in, in this uh, EU-China investment agreement, we see a lot of elements uh, regarding uh, the compliance of international norms, yeah. uh, the access of, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the market uh, as a level, level playing field. That means uh, you know, the European com- companies have to get access, equal access to chi- China uh, as much as Chinese companies are getting um, full access to the European uh, continent. But this is yeah. actually not, not an equal uh, even after the uh, elements of the investment deals were revealed. But then to, to answer your question, I think it's very important to, to understand that the, the EU itself has always been, been misunderstanding um, the strategy of China. Uh, the EU always think that uh, if, you, if you have dialogue and if you cooperate, then there will always be a better outcome and this economic influence can uh, somehow uh, change China from a totalitarian uh, regime to a more open and democratic regime, which um, in the past uh, 30 or 40 years we have proven it is actually completely wrong. But Iverson, so how, what... does that, how does that translate in, in reality? Like, okay, I understand your point and I, I think I kind of agree with you that you cannot just endlessly invite China to the table to talk about human rights while they're uh, building uh, labor camps for Muslims and invading Hong Kong. Um, but what then can you do? Like, even if Europe had its own army, I mean, it's not like we can actually send soldiers to Hong Kong, can we? I think the main question is that um, how the, the EU is uh, preserving the future relationship with China and, and how we can, uh, first and foremost, uh, to protect the single market of the European Union uh, yeah. and also to prioritize uh, the relationship with the PRC, with China, in terms of uh, uh, an economic competitor and a systemic rival. We should think about um, how the uh, aforementioned the 17 plus one uh, EU-China cooperation it is actually uh, ruining the unity of the European Union. And I think this is, this is an, an economic dimension we have to prioritize. And of course, we are not saying that by prioritizing that we, we are not going to talk about human rights, but then we also have to think about whether we, we uh, can agree with a unitary a policy towards China, instead of thinking about some EU member states agreeing to join the Baron Road Initiative and, and this kind of select, selective engagement uh, with China, I, I think it is very bad 
for the self-identity of the EU as the so-called um, democracy defender and um, a, a free market a champion in the world. And I think uh, this is not applicable when you deal with a market with 1.3 billion population uh, ruled by a communist regime. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would like to bring this in a bigger historical context, if I may. Um, now taking off the moderator's crown for a second. Uh, if we want to look at what is at stake in Europe, uh, in my eyes, we can basically look back at European history, right? So there is this uh, Belgian historian and philosopher, his name is Jonathan Holslag. And he wrote an incredible book called uh, The Power of Paradise, which is about how Europe can survive the Asian century. The Asian century, of course, being our 21st century. And Holslag argues rightly that Europeans took very long to understand what they ceased to be um, that they ceased to be world powers after 1945. And luckily by now, I think most Europeans know this, maybe with the exception of British nationalists, but there is still another illusion in Europe. So although Europe lost its world dominating status to the US and the Soviet Union in 1945, Europe really was the play field of global history still afterwards, right? We were the battlefield uh, between the Soviets and the Americans until 1989. But that's until 89, because we have to come to face another geopolitical trauma, maybe. It's like since the 1990s, basically since the collapse of communism, European countries are not just an insignificant player in the global game. We have also ceased to be the primary playing field. The remaining world powers today are the United States of America and the rising star of China. And their struggle does actually not take place in Europe as much as it takes place in the global tech industry and for another part in East Asia. So we really have to realize in my eyes that uh, as Europeans that actually by ceasing to be the playing field, we are only playing a secondary role in the current global game. And of course, the question is then what kind of secondary role do we want to play? Right. Do we want to become some kind of global Switzerland, which is actually an idea that Holzlach uh, likes a lot? Or are we going to join Team USA? Federico, do you have uh, any thoughts about this? Uh, I first want to pick up something that uh, Iverson previously said um, yeah. on the EU delusion that through um, like investment or trade deals or negotiations and dialogue, you can actually turn China into um, a non-totalitarian state, which is a very uh, liberal um idea you know the idea that if you uh, just focus on expanding free trade and 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 if you use rational dialogue at some point you will come to uh, um, uh, a diffusion of human rights and societies will all get all westernized and 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 decent yeah, yeah. and but what we saw for example I'm, I'm keep i keep using empirical examples because i think it's what we should start from um, with the with Turkey, it, it, this is what happened: that it, it, the EU struck a deal uh, for for the migrant crisis. We all remember that. And uh, how did the EU act uh, right after that? It just got more Turkish rather than European, and we saw that with the Frontex uh, case that we discussed last time. Actually, the like the moral behavior of of the European Union got even worse that didn't improve at all because yeah, actually yeah. what what happened is that uh, for example also in the case of china 
if you just keep engaging with them, it's not that China will become more European, but, but Europe will become more Chinese in that sense. And also, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that uh, another important question we should pose to ourselves is, what, even, what does it even mean um, to be European now in terms also of values if the European Union um, seems still to be a, a kind of neoliberal project um, for instance, we saw that with this investment agreement um, with China, there is, with China um, mostly Germany and then France will be uh, favored and their industries will be more favored. Yeah. We're just talking about like, you know, like the main uh, capitalist classes of the main uh, European powers. We're still talking about those kind of interests at the table and nothing else. So what kind of project is that of the European Union? Who, who does it serve? Um, before even talking about like, you know, how can, we can relate in terms of identity, strategy and values against China, we should ask ourselves, what are we actually building for Europeans themselves? Yeah, no, we're not. Yeah, you're right about that. I think, I mean, I, I just disagree with the notion that this is necessarily a neoliberal or liberal attitude. And then I think Biden is a good not, example not liberal, of that, right? Not liberal, not, not liberal, but neoliberal for sure. I yeah, mean, maybe, uh, maybe. I just don't like the word neoliberal, but... Um, I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I don't like the fact that Chinese are called communists as well, but... <laughs> so we're in the same boat there, right? <laughs> not even a communist, but it's just, it's just really painful to... <laughs> yeah, but by name, they yeah, yeah, by it name. In, in the name of communists, but then they yeah, have got nothing but, but, communist in there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can see in the eyes of Federico <laughs> that this hurts a lot. <laughs> it's just sad. It's yeah, just sad. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think there, there's something that I would like to link to this. And um, Federico, you just mentioned Germany. And Germany has been pushing for this uh, EU-China agreement a lot. And I, you know, I, I say it with pain in my heart. So I think this is my turn to be hurt a lot. Um, I, 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 I generally like... Let's make sure the, we're all recording this. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. By the end of this episode, we're all tearing, you know. <laughs> but I really, I really like the Merkel uh, government on many levels, I think. And I, I particularly like the moral um, um, branding of Merkel as a very stable force in an increasingly more insecure uh, Europe. But when it comes to geopolitics, and once again, it hurts me a lot, but Germany is an absolute nightmare, right? They um, keep on um, forcing this North Stream pipeline between Europe and Russia to become increasingly more dependent on the Putin regime. They are one of the biggest exporters of weapons to Saudi Arabia. They are the initiators, the main lobbyists of this EU-China agreement. But when uh, China, uh, when Germany, sorry, not China, when Germany is needed um, for militaristic cooperation between the US and Europe, it always pulls the pacifism card. And it says, no, that's not how we like to uh, deal with things in the world. We like to talk. Nonsense. Bollocks. <laughs> People are getting executed in Saudi Arabia with German bullets. You're not a pacifist country. You just like to sell it to, to, to the outside. And it's such a cynical and fruitless attitude. And there's really no strategy behind it. But Federico, I saw you raising your hand. 
Yeah, that was not a fascist salute. That was uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was raising my hand. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm playing the Zizekian character today. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. No, I mean like, but this is this is the issue uh, with uh, uh, Western liberal capitalism is that you can even come at a time in history where you can make an inter internally decent society, but you will have to do this by offshoring all the dirty work, uh, you know. Um, mm. so, uh, you, you want to keep, uh, having, you know, like uh, money in your country and maybe redistribute them. You do that by uh, selling, um, um, weapons to another country, or you do that by, you know, enslaving workers in, in, in countries like China where workers have no rights. And, uh, so like the point is that, um, we have to come to face the contradictions of uh, of uh, capitalism within the Western world, we yeah. I think it it it, it reached um, a, 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 like its highest uh, point of contradiction, where we see now that we Europeans are barely um, able to uh, keep our internal rights as citizens uh, of welfare, labor rights, and everything. We're even starting to lose them, and at the same time. Uh, Externally, uh, we're contributing to make it everything worse for the others. So I think really um, either we, uh, but the only way to learn how to improve also our behaviors externally is also to start to do that internally. And internally, the European Union, what, what is it doing right now um, in order to, to change itself, you know? Like um, even with like- There's, we, we there's have, no I mean, reform taking place, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Federico, I mean, you know, um, before you keep on um, building further on your doom scenario, um, uh, Iverson, I saw you wanting to say something about this. Yeah, I want to jump in. Um, I think that the main point of, of this whole issue uh, in Europe is that the EU is not willing to confront China. I think this is a very important point to make that uh, if you look into the, the, the case of Hong Kong, for example, Uh, last year, there was a legislation uh, imposed by the Chinese uh, parliament, and uh, it is a violation of the international agreement signed between uh, Britain and uh, China when the UK was part of the European Union. And mm -hmm. the EU actually made a, a conclusion that uh, beyond 1997, that mm -hmm. uh, the EU would deal with all the internal affairs with Hong Kong directly. So with, with that imposition of, of the uh, national security law, which is um, an, an all-encompassing suppressive law that can uh, arrest anyone with any nationality, uh, because we even have an American uh, lawyer being arrested in Hong Kong, uh, yeah. then actually the EU could have uh, issued um, a warning that uh, we would terminate the dialogue with the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region government. Uh, instead of, you know, making fairly weak uh, statements saying that uh, we have a package and then we will coordinate with the European Union member states. So if you, if you look into that, that um, issue, it's not just about human rights, but how uh, international norms are being respected. And, and you can see that the case of Hong Kong is actually um, an early warning sign that started in 2019, that, that the EU is, is not having, let's say, the political energy uh, to yeah. confront with China directly in order to, to have, um, let's say, a protection of our values, the universal values that, that most of the people on the planet cherish the most. Yeah. yeah. How can we get this energy back, Arvison? Do you have any idea? I, I wouldn't start with, um, I wouldn't start with this popular discourse 
terms of saying like we have to uh, support the people of Hong Kong or to, to uh, fight for democracy, I would start with saying that there are a lot of substantial legal regulations that are already violated by the PRC. And what the EU can do is to utilize this instrumental power. For example, they have an office, the EU office to Hong Kong and Macau. And this is a de facto embassy because of the uh, conclusion that the commission made before the handover uh, in 1997. So they can use this um, instrument let's say, to uh, suspend the dialogue with the Hong Kong government mm. and to suspend the status of Hong Kong. It would be rather symbolic, right? Yeah, but, but then the, the... But it would be uh, a beginning, at least. Yeah. Yes, the point is that uh, the EU actually has a lot of uh, creative instruments, uh, like the dialogue I mentioned, because there is a structural dialogue between exclusively between Hong Kong and the European Union. And the trade commissioner from the EU would actually visit Hong Kong to negotiate the trade relations, uh, the business contacts, investment, and so on, because Hong Kong has an independent judiciary, which is yeah. recognized by the international community. And now it is abused by China because China is de facto controlling part of this ju jurisdiction and to utilize it to export the, the influence and also to, to earn as much money as possible in Hong Kong to uh, conduct activities like uh, being the biggest offshore markets, uh, offshore renminbi markets. So they, uh, they evaluate their, their dirty money in mainland China to yeah. Hong Kong and to export to the rest of the world. So uh, this is something that you can actually do without even mentioning one single word in terms of human rights or democracy. Yeah. Yeah, no, that would actually, I think, already be an important symbolic step towards a confrontation or to uh, at least um, express a dismissal um, towards uh, towards China. But I mean, in the end, I think if it really wants to make a difference, the European Union should actually have the ability to construct its own geopolitical um, dimension, right? To have its own geopolitical instruments. And it simply doesn't have that right now or... Am I really thinking very skeptical uh, about this? Federico, maybe you have an idea about this. Well, uh, it's really complicated right now uh, to understand where Europe, uh, European Union uh, can go in terms of unity and direction and strategy, because I think that in general, European int integration and European uh, dynamics uh, are very often a direct or almost direct translation of a national dynamics, yeah, of national French, German, politics. yeah, yeah. So what happened internally in Italian politics, then it's translated to uh, European politics as well. And I think right now most of governments uh, in uh, European nation states are in crisis or there are no clear, in general, it seems like, for example, here in Italy, there is no clear uh, ideological stake at all anymore in politics. And I think this is fundamental if yeah. you want to... If you want to confront such an ideological, and I say ideological also in a good sense, um, an ideological power like China, someone that, you know, that has a real project, um, you have to also have an ideology. And right now, this is completely lacking. Right now, you see, for example, in Italian politics, it seems like Draghi could be the next um, uh, the next prime minister. And it's just, you know... Uh, He's um, a technocrat. 
yeah, he's a technocrat. You see, you yeah. see where, where we are right now. So how can we talk that then about a European strategy? If and this if, is this is the funny happens. thing, right? I mean, Italy has a long tradition of um, getting technocrats um, uh, into the government, but you know, you could actually argue that. Uh, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte, he he is uh, he, his popularity is due to the fact that he has kind of this image of a technocrat, right? He he literally said to a journalist, "If you have a vision, you should fix your eyes." Right? That's like this is literally what this this man said, right? So so we live in this technocratic culture also in Europe. Like, no, come on, let's talk with China. Uh, they might be our ideological enemies, but. Hey, in the end, uh, it's all about the money, and we just want the economy grow, right? right. And, yeah, I uh, think, and it doesn't yeah, you, matter you, that you, we have to give up of our value, values. Exactly, you touched on the right point because actually, of course, my mine was a, um, a provoking statement that there is no ideology. There is a clear ideology in the European Union, and it's a neoliberal technocratic one, yeah. and it's still in place. Um, but the thing is, it's also kind of anti-democratic, right? It is because yeah. if we realize, for example, we saw with the again with the Frontex case and with the case of immigration in the Mediterranean Sea, we realized last time in the last episode of Speaking of Europe that I'm making some advertisements if it was <laughs> it's already needed. <laughs> Thank um, you. It, it, we, we saw that human rights have a cost. You know, if you yep. want to manage. Prop, humanly manage migration, you need lots of money. Where yep. are all those money? We saw in the pandemic that the rich is getting richer and the poor is getting Absolutely. poorer. We know where all these money are. So the problem is that we have to realize that human rights have a cost and that cost can only be um, uh, paid if we restructure our economic system. So like, again, it's an interest of of you know the, the the ruling class against all the others in this okay, case. Okay, okay. Uh, let, let's not well, yeah, go too much <laughs> into the uh, the class struggle again. I, Iverson, do you do you actually agree with the the notion that Federico and I share that um, this is in the end uh, something that can only be solved if Europeans become more ideological again? This is very. Uh, this is a very tough question. I think, uh, as I mentioned before. Um, Speaking uh, as a Hong Konger who whose society is actually quite technocratic itself, um, I, I would believe that um, actually the European Union is being too ideological, and that's why it, it opens the, the market fully to to the People's Republic of China. I think that is actually uh, opposite uh, to to what you claimed before, because if you think about the logic with the investment agreements. Uh, the EU has always been so open to the uh, Chinese companies. We don't have uh, specific regulations, say, uh, we are limiting certain regions of China to, to do business or to, uh, to have investment, certain investment flow to the European Union. We don't have that. But on the other hand, in the People's Republic of China, they will specify certain countries in the European Union. They can selectively allow certain investors to, to yeah. get into the capitals and to have uh, their business opportunities from the European Union, from the European Union member states to the People's Republic. So yeah. if you look into this, on paper alone, we have a very clear deficit of trading with China from the European Union. And this is actually um, not, not something ideological. Uh, the EU itself is not going too ideological, and actually, I, I would oppose it. Uh, this is not the main reason. The main reason uh, between uh, with, with the current saga of the EU-China relations is that 
the EU is actually going too ideological. Um, first and foremost, the EU is uh, assuming that uh, China will be in compliance of international agreement. This is uh, too simple and too naive, and this is not making sense. If you look into the case of um, Xinjiang, it's a violation of international labor's rights, and this is um, an organization that uh, China is pledging to, to commit to the uh, forced labor uh, uh, regulation that, that China is, commit, uh, is, is trying to say that they are not going to do that and we believe that it's not going to happen anyway they are going to violate all these international norms anyway then we have also seen the issue of Tibet of systematic suppression of the people in Tibet uh, and, and now because we're losing our focus and no one is actually talking about this then the latest and the, actually the most important one is about Hong Kong how um, an international financial center being annexed by the Chinese Communist Party and, and how Hong Kong's one country, two systems principle is no longer applied. At the same time, China is actually taking full advantage of the judicial system, which has British judges uh, sitting in the uh, court of uh, the final court in Hong Kong. So yeah. you, you can see with all this, the EU itself is not actually using all the instruments that are possible to allocate into the confrontations with China, which can actually lead a better result because the EU is afraid of China using its marketing power as well as possible military aggression in the South China Sea. And the EU is also claiming that they want to have peaceful negotiation. And I think this is not happening at the time when China is advocating this wolf warrior policy. Yeah. It is the same aggression as uh, what we have seen in, in Moscow recently, uh, how our EU high representative was being insulted yeah, by the Russian yeah. foreign ministry. So you, we, can, we can see all these patterns are actually the EU's Definitely. own problem. It's no, actually but, uh, not... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, sorry for interrupting Iverson, yeah. but I think we have a very different understanding of ideology then if, if, um, uh, if we criticize um, um, the EU for the opposite, namely for either being too ideological or not being ideological enough. When you say that the European Union is being too ideological, I feel like what you actually mean to say is that the European Union is way too naive, right? Um, it believes that it can solve the problems with um, China in the same way as it solves problems between member states. But I don't think that is, I, I don't think that is due to um, their ideological attitude. In fact, if the European Union would truly be very ideological on this matter, they would not continue a conversation with someone with a country that is building concentration camps in their country and is um, depriving Hong Kong people from their civil liberties. So, so I, I feel that um, our understanding of ideology comes from a very, very different direction. I don't know, maybe Federico, you can help us out here. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the way I used ideology uh, before, uh, it was that typical way that it is used in, in mainstream media. So I, I, I said it in that way in order for our audience to better understand what I meant. But actually, I agree with Iverson. I mean, also the EU as an ideology. Everyone has an ideology. Everyone is under ideology. Um, and the EU ideology is a neoliberal one. And uh, Iverson uh, meant 
uh, well, they just stick with their ideological principle and assumptions on how the, the world will behave. And actually, the world is not behaving that way, but they do not like they cannot grasp that feedback back into their framework because they're just too stuck in their ideology. I think this is what he meant. And I agree with him. I think I would just want to add one thing okay. is that what we are seeing right now is that the, the when I said we're, we're coming to the highest point of contradiction of Western liberal capitalism is that um, we see uh, b both uh, worlds uh, are capitalistic, China and, and, and the West. And what we are seeing is that authoritarianism works better with capitalism. Capitalism is working better with uh, authoritarianism, while uh, our liberal democratic principles are actually contrasting with capitalism. And here, we, I think it's time we make a decision because if we keep playing on the capitalistic level, China is stronger because it, uh, with an authoritarian regime, it's even better to, to, to deal with, with global uh, capital trades and, and dynamics. So we have to choose either we stick with capitalism the way China does, and then we're going to head towards the same direction. There will be no way to keep having uh, human rights and capitalism together or we go for another way, which we know is not capitalism, and then we open another path. Iverson, I saw you nodding. Do you actually agree with that? Um, no, actually, yes and no. <laughs> actually, um, I, I do echo with Federico in, in terms of uh, the the uh, balancing of uh, liberalism and, and capitalism. I, I think more, more importantly, we have to think about uh, China as a case, not, not as an ideology, because if you talk about ideology, Russia, is actually quite sharing the same, but then the result is different. When when it comes to the question of Russia, it's about the GDP like Russia of just, New York. But I, f I just feel like Russia would love to be like China, but just can't. I think that's yes, exactly. Right? So <laughs> I I think the the issue uh, with China is uh, is a mixture of a huge market, a very huge economy, yeah. and also the fact that it. It, it is the world's leader and, and we have to accept that. But the question is how we are going to moderate and to maximize the cause of China imposing its, in, its norms, its own values into everywhere on the planet. And I think in this sense, the, the EU bureaucrats can actually Im impose a lot of limitations to increase the cause yeah. of China from, from doing that. For example, how uh, China is imposing the so-called soft power in building the Confucius Institute uh, in, in European countries and in Americas. So I, I think these are the confrontations that the EU can actually take measures uh, to be very aware of the cultural diplomacy uh, imposed by China. Yeah. At the same time, China is an aggressive uh, foreign um, actor. So we, we can actually uh, take notes on that. And so in principle, I, I do agree with uh, Federico because uh, the main point is that this is an authoritarian state that can effect, uh, effectively capitalize yeah. the, um, the, let's say, the uh, limitations of the liberal democracies in, in the West um, that, that includes the Five Eyes and the European Union. Yeah, yeah. I, maybe on a last note, I think like, I, I kind of feel uh, what uh, way Federico was heading to. I, I don't necessarily agree that um, capitalism in the future can only come in Chinese form, but at least what we can agree upon is that there was this belief in the 1990s. I mean, there were many thinkers who pushed this belief, just like uh, Francis Fukuyama back then. I mean, he, he, he regrets it right now, but uh, back then he argued that 
capitalism cannot exist without democracy and democracy cannot exist without capitalism. Well, that thesis has been completely destroyed right now by China, right? I think that is something that we can all agree with. And I think that maybe also taking your pers perspective into account, Iverson, I think what we are confronted with, with this EU-Chinese agreement, is that our capitalist interests here are fundamentally different from our democratic interests here. And that doesn't happen that often in such an explicit way as it does now. And, um, and I think that is the, the big challenge. Um, anyways, guys, do you, do you still have something to add? Something? Yeah, uh, final note on Hong Kong. Sure. So I, I think uh, as someone who was born and raised in Hong Kong, seeing how uh, I used to live in a place uh, that was uh, full of uh, freedoms, but not democracy at all. So we were largely uh, free to criticize our government. And also we could um, mobilize all of our financial uh, investments and interests because like everyone in Hong Kong, every family holds a stock in Hong Kong. And, and that was actually the freedom that we had. And, and guess what we had because we didn't fight for democracy in the very beginning. My parents' generation didn't think about how China could actually violate this whole one country, two system and thinking, okay, the sun rises as usual. And that is how the Hong Kongers have completely lost the, the limited freedoms and also the progressive democratic institutions that, that we had. And I think this is going to be a very um, heavy lesson, but then I think the West and especially the European Union has to learn from that, has to learn from the fact that if you, if you don't prioritize that, that your values, then soon enough, uh, China can actually capitalize uh, all of uh, the, the advantages that we had and to turn it against us. So I think uh, at the end of the day, it is about um, how, how dear the, the EU bureaucrats are holding uh, with their values and to defend it, even yeah. though uh, confronting China would mean there would be a slightly loss of business interest. But then at the end of the day, we are still going to protect the European single market and European unity. Thank you, Iverson. And on that note, I think we all agree that we cannot take democracy for granted. And I think that is the message that we all try to put forward here. Thank you for participating us and our fans for listening. Please do not forget to leave a comment on YouTube or hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. See you next time in Speaking of Europe. Bye. Oh, great. Ha 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 